Welcome to Folkways, an auditory stroll through the rich and fascinating folklore of Britain and Ireland. The beliefs and culture of people who made this cluster of northerly islands their home. From music to psychogeography to what to do if you notice the devil following you to church. It's a long, strange trip and there are no guarantees you'll be home in time for dinner. Hello, welcome to our seventh episode, A Sleigh Ride Through Christmas. A last winter jolly before we head into Covid, Tier 4. Pulled by reindeer, we're shortly heading out into the cold weather to see if we can find the origins of some of our winter festivities. Hats and gloves, essential. The snow clouds mean there is no visible sunset tonight. Instead, the light thickens and clots as darkness begins to form. For more than an hour now, I have tramped through the forest that grows a few miles from my home. Now, the world is about to transform again. Night is coming. Darkness will soon cover the forest as surely as any snow. Stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. And you have a greeting for me. Today, always. Ending and beginning day. The day of death. And you have. Try. Merry solstice. Solstice greetings. For a while, Christmas was banned. In 1647, the Puritan-led English Parliament banned the celebration, considering it a popish festival with no biblical justification and a time of wasteful and immoral behaviour. Protests followed as pro-Christmas rioting broke out in several cities, and for weeks Canterbury was controlled by the rioters, whose protests included decorating doorways with holly. On the 22nd of December 1647, the Canterbury Crier went through the city proclaiming that Christmas Day and all other superstitious activities should be stopped. Five years later, on Christmas Eve itself, a general order of Parliament decreed that no observation shall be had of the 5 and 20th day of December, commonly called Christmas Day. However, you might have noticed as you perhaps look at the decorations that surround you, Christmas survived. This episode is a sleigh ride through time. Come in and get comfy on your seat before we head off. We'll be moving fast through silhouettes of trees in the snow, dashing through hearty wintry festivals whilst avoiding the many spectres and monstrous beings that haunt this winter landscape. No, no, it's, it's okay. You don't have to come if you're scared. I can just meet you. Le- oh, you. Oh, you do want to come. 
Throughout, he'll also hear excerpts of Under the Stars, A Journey into Light by Matt Gore to help us reconsider our relationship with night and the darker half of the year. Are you ready? You've still got time to get off, okay? Okay, go! Go, go! Yes, indeed, Christmas has survived. It's doing pretty well, actually. But as we cast our minds over some of the traditions associated with this celebration, there are more than a few questions. We know the birth of Christ has been assigned this date. We can think of the poetry and beauty of this story at its heart, the carols which celebrate this, their melodies so deeply imprinted. The atmosphere of a midnight mass service on Christmas Eve, the candles, cheer, the way everyone turns to each other after that final chord has rung out, to shake hands and, with a genuine affection, wish each other a very Merry Christmas. But we might be forgiven for struggling to see the connection between the birth of Christ and a guy with a dietary problem in a red suit breaking into your house to deliver toys to your children with whom he seems to have an over-familiar relationship with. Ditto chopping down trees en masse to cover in tinsel and stick a fairy on top. And what about that yule log? See also the compulsion to pour through the streets, spending extravagant amounts of money. Also, on the big day itself, you can hand someone that thoughtful, well-wrapped gift. Chapter 1. Celebrate good times, come on. Where to start? I'd love to say the beginning, but I don't know where that is or how to get there. But we can look at some of the early threads and see how they become woven into something more familiar. The first step on this package tour is Newgrange in Ireland. For this, we're going back in time, but just a few days to December the 21st, the winter solstice. We've actually been travelling quite fast as I've been talking, and I think we can just see the surrounding landscape coming up ahead now. Look closely over there, can you see? We're beginning to slow down. It is now the morning of December 21st, before sunrise. It is dark. It is cold. It is winter. I'm glad to see you've wrapped up well. Newgrange is a prehistoric monument. It is situated within the Neolithic Bruna Boigne complex, which means palace or mansion of the Boyne, referring to the area within the bend of the River Boyne, which contains one of the world's most important prehistoric landscapes. Within this landscape, more than 90 monuments have been found, including passage tombs, henges, mounds and standing stones, situated from here to the river. As we get out all oh, careful, we are currently surrounded by all these ancient archaeological sites. Even before we've seen anything though, just being here in the dark with the beams from the torches is giving this thought even more poignancy. Perhaps it's just the eerie stillness of the night. Newgrange is the most famous monument of all within this complex. It is an exceptionally grand passage tomb, older than both Stonehenge and the Egyptian pyramids. 
The site consists of a large circular mound with an inner stone passageway and chambers. Human bones and votive offerings have been found within. Many of the larger stones of Newgrange are covered in megalithic art. The mound is also ringed by a stone circle. However, Newgrange is best known for the illumination of its passage and chamber by the winter solstice sun, and that, as we walk towards it, our breath visible in the torch's beams is what we're here for. If we just come in now, if you look up, above the entrance to the passage there is an opening called the roof box. At dawn, a narrow beam of light is meant to penetrate this box and reach the floor of the chamber. We got? Um, we've still got about another 20 minutes, 20 minutes. So let's settle down as we keep an eye on the roof and wait. I guess it's been about eight, eight, maybe ten minutes now, but already I'm actually a bit surprised at some of the feelings I'm having. Maybe it's the darkness or the surrounding silence, but when you're here, not quickly dashing through the night trying to get somewhere, not trying to banish it either, we've put our torches away. It's actually really hard to put into words, but just the dark and the cold are very real, not just temperature-wise, but the effect it has on your mind too. Strangely, I'd only thought about the sun's first rays. I'd honestly never given any real thought to the darkness that would precede this. <gasps> yep, I think, yep. It, the beginning of a narrow beam of light has just started to come through the roof box. It is now starting to reach the floor of the chamber, gradually, very, very gradually, extending to the end of the passage. As the sun is now rising higher, the beam is widening within the chamber so that the whole room is becoming dramatically illuminated. We're now back on our way again, the image of the sun lighting up the dark landscape of Bruna Boinia, still playing on repeat at the back of my mind. I was expecting, when I was thinking about this ahead of time, imagining it, I was thinking it would be this beautiful and inspiring moment, but like I said, I'd not ever really considered the inky, pre-dawn gloom that would precede the sun's rays and sitting within it, completely still, away from all our comforts and things we spend a lot of time and money on to make us feel safe in the cold and dark. The removing of this comfy, cultural padding so it was just bone against rock, it took me off guard a bit. 
It made the sun's eventual rays impactful, not just in an aesthetically pleasing way. It wasn't just beautiful, but it was a relief. For a few seconds, I skated the periphery at least of why the tracking of the sun and the building of these monuments to do so was so essential. In my first ever podcast episode on the summer solstice, I took some time to talk about the observance of the seasons in the modern world. That first ever 15 minute episode makes a nice adjunct to this one, so feel free to revisit it after. Oh, the cold is really stinging my cheeks. So we are now moving fast through the landscape and I can see what looks like a big hall ahead with its doors that are now opening to us to let us in. Ready? Oh, we're going straight through. Inside are lines of tables with people feasting in what looks like types of Roman fancy dress. In ancient Rome, the week before our Christmas, an event was held. It was a public holiday for feasting, goodwill, generosity to the poor, and the exchange of gifts. But it wasn't Christmas. This was Saturnalia, the pagan Roman winter festival. In many Roman households, a mock king was chosen, called the leader of Saturnalia, a Roman equivalent to the Lord of Misrule. Usually a lowlier member of the household, this figure was responsible for making mischief during the celebrations, including insulting guests, wearing extravagant clothing, and, so my notes say, chasing people. The idea was that this person ruled over chaos, rather than the normal Roman order ruling over them. During Saturnalia, work and business came to a halt. Schools and courts of law closed, and the normal social patterns were suspended. People decorated their homes with wreaths and other greenery, and shed their traditional togas in favour of colourful clothes. Even slaves did not have to work, but were allowed to participate in the festivities. In some cases, they sat at the head of the table while their masters served them. So, instead of working, Romans spent this festival gambling, singing, playing music, feasting, socialising, and giving each other gifts. Wax taper candles were often exchanged to signify light returning after the solstice. Saturnalia was by far the jolliest of Roman holidays. It was so riotous that author Pliny built himself his own soundproof booth so he could do some work during the festivities. Or so the story goes. Oh, oh, we're being handed a glass of what appears to be wine by a man dressed very strangely. Thank you very much. No, oh, no, he's just run off. I think we just got waited on, possibly by a lord of misrule. Cheers. Anyway, does any of this sound familiar? Of course it does. Thanks to the Roman Empire's conquests in Britain and the rest of Europe, Early celebrations of Christmas are thought to have derived partly from a mixing of Roman festivals with other long-established winter festivals, marking the end of the harvest and the all-important winter solstice. As Ronald Hutton, historian at Bristol University writes, 
It's a mistake to say our modern Christmas traditions come directly from pre-Christian paganism. However, you'd be equally wrong to sidestep this. As Christians spread their religion into Europe in the first centuries AD, they ran into people living by a variety of local and regional religious creeds. This makes sense. Christmas is a bumping and then a blending of a whole host of ideas that we now perhaps don't bat an eyelid at, but when taken apart and looked at closer, make for some quite interesting bedfellows. As uh, much fun as this is, it's making me a bit nervous. It's getting pretty rowdy, and I've noticed that table eyeing the reindeer. We are on the move again. We're now moving fast through a different landscape. I can see shepherds watching their flocks under the December moon. Over on that hill, I can see three rather grand-looking men. There's not much around here of significance other than a stable in the distance, over which there is an enormous shining star lighting up the sky around it even more than the moonlight. I guess they're heading there. we can see how the celebration of the nativity has come to be associated with the rites from the other two previous celebrations we stopped by. The birth of the sun, S-U-N, the celebration of light over darkness, is quite a poetic fit for the birth of the S-O-N and a triumph of the same things. I can't remember the last time I was out at night. Not just out, camping, running, or toddling home from pubs, but really out, watching as the light fades, experiencing darkness creeping up with each passing minute, from mountain to meadow. And so, here I am, even though I've been waiting for it, almost willing the night to arrive. The physicality of twilight surprises me, catches me off guard. The shifts might be gradual, but they are also dizzying. The light fuzzes like the picture on an old TV set. All feels hazy, flickering and granular. At first I trip with every other step until my eyes begin to adjust to the lowering light. My hearing seems sharper too. Slowly, slowly, the definition of day blurs. I can no longer see the falling snow, although I can feel it on my face. Chapter 2. Into the Forest We're slowing down as the sleigh now moves through a forest. We're carefully steering through the trees, just about enough visibility in the twilight. The ground is blanketed with thick snow. We wrap up any small slithers of skin on our necks still visible with our scarves. I don't know what the date is, but we are certainly in the depths of mid Did you just see that? We pull on the reins and the reindeer come to a halt. There's someone in the trees. Our bodies both stiffen as we peer out in the gloom. Silence. Nothing but the silhouette of trees as our eyes strain. 
then, a flurry of movement as a figure in what looks like a dark cloak begins to run. Instinctively, without having to ask each other, we decide to follow. We call out, Excuse me! But the figure just runs faster. The reindeer begin to pick up speed in the snow, us catching occasional glimpses of the nimble individual flashes as they dart between the trees. We are faster. Eventually the sightings of them stop and we pull on the reins and come to a halt. We hold our breath as we then hear footsteps close in the snow. I can feel my heart hammering and I fumble on the floor for a torch, it increasingly hard to make anything out at all. I can't find the switch and I hear the footsteps growing even closer on my right side. They're heading towards us. Finally, I nearly half blind you as the torch comes on straight into your eyes and you cover your face with your arm. I move the torch wildly around in the surrounding trees and gasp as I see a figure only about a metre away from us approaching the sleigh from the back right. I yell again and then apologise. The figure is nimble yet purposeful as it walks, so it is now level to where we sit. In the harsh beam of the torchlight is a tall, elderly man, covered in a rich green cloak. His face is hard to make out under a long white beard, and in his hand he carries a staff. Santa? You say raspily, barely above a whisper. But I don't think this is Santa. This is the Holly King. We're transfixed by his calming, knowing presence. We see holly and ivy that adorn his head in a type of wintry crown. His eyes sparkle. You were right in that he does look like a kind of druidic woodsy Father Christmas. But this figure has no interest in delivering sweets and trinkets, and his home isn't the North Pole, but deep within the wintry, snow-strewn trees. In many Celtic-based traditions, there is the enduring legend of the battle between the Oak King and the Holly King. These two mighty rulers of the seasons fight for supremacy as the wheel of the year turns. At the winter solstice, the Oak King conquers the Holly King and then reigns until midsummer. There's not much time to rest on laurels, as once the summer solstice arrives, the Holly King pops up amongst the celebrations to do battle with the old king and defeats him. As we gaze at the figure, struggling to get our thoughts together, he begins to flicker. In the beam of the torch, which I pointed at his chest to avoid blinding him, the man is beginning to change, morph, not exactly dramatically, more like water gently moving as his features slightly, subtly begin to change. He is shrinking a lot, down to not much more than four foot, his clothes the same shrinking with him. He looks more familiar now. He, he reminds me of someone, but something's a bit off. He has on his back a large bag in which a doll's head and the top of what looks like a drum are sticking out. Santa? Now I say, but it's not Santa. It's close, but once again not. For one, his cloak is still green, and far from the jolly, rotund figure we're used to seeing, this is a slight individual, almost a spooky-looking elf. You shudder. The strange man doesn't respond to my address. 
He looks like he's heard it all before, but instead, again, he begins to change into a third figure, slightly, slightly, subtly. He once again is growing in height, his face becoming elongated and more severe. His green cloak is changing to a kind of tan, and he is eyeing us from the side, slightly judgmentally to be honest. I think I can spy a crucifix around his neck. But he doesn't stop there. From this man, he begins to change again into a fourth figure, growing wider, his clothes somehow stretching with him. His face becomes plump, and in the torchlight, I can see cheeks like two red apples. He laughs, throwing down the bag and rubbing his fingers together in the light falling snow. This guy looks familiar. He laughs and then does his signature tagline, before picking up the bag of toys and running away into the snow. We don't follow this time but sit there in stunned silence as snow continues to brush our hats and eyelids. We then turn to each other, trying to make sense of the Santa Three and the quiet, woodsy magic of the Holly King. You shrug. I look around and see the forest is now completely dark. I wave the torch through the trees, scanning for any other bizarre guests. I want to go home, and we slowly start moving through the snow once more. The Santa Claus we all know and love, that big, jolly man in the red suit, didn't always look that way. In fact, many people are surprised to learn that prior to 1931, Santa was depicted quite differently. Looking at vintage Christmas cards, Santa often looks like a member of the clergy on the run. He has previously donned a bishop's robe and a Norse huntsman's animal skin. In fact, when Civil War cartoonist Thomas Nast drew Santa Claus for Harper's Weekly in 1862, Santa was a small elf-like figure who supported the Union. Nast was a German immigrant whose father served as a musician in the Kingdom of Bavaria's army. As a little boy, Thomas was visited by Pelzer Nicole, the German Santa Claus, who brought treats and toys or punishment for naughty children. Through Nast's famous illustrations, this figure of his childhood would find its way into the imagery of the All-American. Nast continued to draw Santa for 30 years, changing the colour of his coat from tan to the rich red he's known for today. Many people will tell you that a certain soft drinks company invented Santa's look, giving him a makeover and a brand new red suit. In fact, Nast had already begun depicting Santa in red before this, so that's not strictly true, but unnamed soft drinks company certainly popularised the red-clad jolly fellow we know today. But forget his garbs, what about the man himself? As many will know, Santa means saint and is of modern usage. What looks like a point of origin for Santa is St Nicholas of Patara, a 3rd century bishop of Myra. Born in Turkey, he became well known for his anonymous gifts to the poor. Tradition has it that he left these offerings in the house of selected recipients, sneaking in during the night to leave money or food in the shoes or stockings. 
His lasting popularity is based entirely on the miraculous stories told about him and the reputation he had for secret assistance to the needy. It is said he possessed such a degree of holiness that he could work wonders at will. Most of the stories told of him, as recorded in the influential book of saints' tales, The Golden Legend, relate to how he intervened to save people in groups of three. He raised to life three boys who had been murdered, dismembered and stored in brine in a tub by a butcher. Mm, nice. He freed three condemned men, saved three sailors and three princes, and delivered three girls from being pimped out by their father. He was immensely popular in the Eastern Church in the 6th century, and by the 10th was equally widely known in the West. In many countries in Europe, St Nicholas's official day is December the 6th, or Children's Day. In fact, it is only in comparatively recent times that we have conflated the two dates, making the 25th a general festival now for the exchanging of gifts. There is an increasingly popular origin for Santa beyond St Nicholas though, which talks of the shamans who resided in the far north, anywhere from Lapland to Siberia. These people often wore bells on their ritual costumes, shimmied up central poles of their skin tents, and returned with gifts of prophecy and wonder from the other world. As John Rush, an anthropologist at Sierra College writes, Santa is a modern counterpart of a shaman who consumed mind-altering plants and fungi to commune with the spirit world. He says, as the story goes, up until a few hundred years ago, these practicing shamans or priests connected to the older traditions would collect Amanita muscaria, dry them, and give them as gifts on the winter solstice. Harvard University biologist Donald Pfister suggests that Siberians who ingested the mushrooms may have hallucinated the grazing reindeer were flying. This, I assure you, is a hotly contested issue, and when you eventually get home, you can dive into this a little deeper. Whilst I don't find a direct link to Santa in these shaman theories, in the same way we can demonstrably trace him to St Nicholas, we can, however, think of comparable imagery the far north, the North Pole, reindeer and his prophetic knowledge, we can certainly see the shamanic within him. Ugh. I think we need to go faster. I think there are other things out there. Through the trees we can see glimpses of other figures, hooded individuals and, and some kind of a goat. Oh God, I think the trees are now crawling really hope Santa or the Holly King comes back. We think of Christmas as this wholesome, merry, child-focused time and reserve all things creepy for Halloween. But this divide is somewhat superficial. Halloween was traditionally seen as the gateway to winter and many of these themes continued through the darker part of the year. It was a lean time Death breathed close on the heels of your community, and there was the understanding that not everyone would survive it. It's this that makes the solstice, the return of the longer days of warmth, so significant. In these winter landscapes, trees sparse and ground frozen, ominous figures stalk at night. We peer through our curtains, wondering if anyone is watching back. 
every protagonist needs an antagonist. And to the benevolent Santa, we have a motley crew of European villains. One particularly bad cop is Krampus, a demonic half-goat monster with horns and a long tongue. He drags chains behind him as he walks and rattles them ominously. He carries a birch to whip bad children and sometimes a basket for kidnapping them. Although alpine in origin, each year he seems to get more and more popular on other shores, emerging from hipsterdom into mainstream consciousness. See the 2015 horror comedy film Krampus. The eve of St Nicholas's Day, which we looked at earlier, 5th of December, is Krampusnacht. Hordes of Krampuses march through alpine towns in elaborate, sinister costumes. In recent years, the Krampus's tendency to go on drunken rampages, getting into fights and destroying property, has become scarier than the demon goat itself. Then, this Frau Perchter, a witch who comes to see who has been naughty and who has been nice. She slits the bellies of bad children and stuffs their corpses with straw. You'll have noticed that these entities with their godlike knowledge are, despite their practices, concerned with morality. Who has been good, just like Santa. The difference is that if you fail, you don't get a lump of coal, you might not get another chance at all. The punishment is torturous and severe. Perhaps part of the reason for their continued success is that we instinctually understand that there is a dark belly beneath all this damn goodwill. People are not always nice, and the idea of Santa delivering coal if you've not been good has almost been forgotten. Instead, we seem to be associating him evermore as the reliable deliverer of bags and bags of mass-produced disposable goods, and for which you don't even need to behave yourself. This is a far cry from the morality-driven message of a bringer of treats in the night to the poor and deserving. Perhaps we recognise that whilst not supporting the actions of Krampus and co, that an increasingly bland, saccharine Santa swigging unnamed soft drink brand for a sense of mythic balance needs some of the darker figures of European folklore. By the time I reach the northern edge of the forest, it has gone 11pm, and it's as dark as it's going to get. With the moon new and the cloud smoking room thick, the only source of light seems to be the snow itself, a topsy-turvy world where the land is brighter than the sky. Fallow deer break into a fat-bottomed seesawing run. Others follow, until the whole herd pours over the path in front of me. They move as one, a liquid form that jumps and springs away from open land towards the trees to my right. I watch as they go, their black shapes lit by snowlight, every muffled hoof strike reverberating deep in my chest. I've seen deer on the move before, plenty of times, but during the day. There's something about the nighttime world that made the experience feel more intense. My world reduced by darkness to a much more intimate one that we briefly inhabited together.
I've never really considered exploring the nightscape before. To me, night has always been a dark and gloomy place, a solid black bookend to day that inspires fear and anxiety. But here among the trees, clouds and snow glow, I can already see that night is not just one long stretch of unforgiving darkness, any more than daytime is constant bright blue sky. Night is full of its own shades of light, capable of illuminating the landscape and inspiring in us a sense of connection and wonder. I feel a tingle of delight at the realization that, almost by accident, I've ghosted into a different world. Chapter 3. I'll be home for Christmas. Home. It's the season for hunkering on down, drawing those curtains at 4pm, keeping out the chill of the night, getting cosy. We are wintering. A type of quasi-hibernation where the long walks of summer, adventures with friends, seem so distant we might have dreamt them. We are wintering. So, thinking about winter and being at home, the last stop on our tour is home. This is an old home. It's not mine, but I feel like I recognise it. It's a small, two-up, two-down cottage. Downstairs there is a kitchen and a living room, and within this, a large fireplace with a wood burner within it, we can smell the smoke. There are old wooden beams with mistletoe hanging from them. We walk towards the fire and see stockings hanging up either side, an offering of a mince pie and a glass of milk are nearby. The fireplace or hearth was seen as the heart of the home, the centre of the house of domestic life. For our ancestors, it was where food was made, stories were shared, textiles were crafted. More than this being a practical nexus only, it was also seen as the place where spirits of the house would dwell. They would be given offerings, and there is a plethora of folk rites and customs concerning this. There were ancestral spirits who slept among the hearthstones that flared up brilliantly at Christmas to dispense their blessings on the home. On Christmas Eve, we hang our stockings in front of the fireplace, not because we don't have clothes dryers or because Saint Nick can't find them anywhere else, but because the fireplace remains a sacred, sooty temple. It is still a focus of the home. Interestingly, the Roman word for hearth is focus. Euro-pagan religions which preceded Christianity have deep elements of ancestor worship, not just popping round to see your granny every now and again, but a focus on the long ancestral lines that mean you're here today, listening to this. In this way, we would expect the ancestors to play a role in holy days throughout the year. So hang up your stockings and leave your libations of booze, milk and cookies for Santa. You're participating in a very old tradition indeed. And whether or not you have a fireplace, since Christmas is about family, raising a glass to those who went before, known and unknown, seems like a nice fit. Look around at the mistletoe hanging, a sacred plant to the druids, which we hang up in a forgotten blessing and fertility wish. Hear the carolers at the door, singing of holly and ivy, a celebration of the natural world that slipped by the Protestants. Look at the greenery that has been brought inside the house, the beautiful tree, not only taking joy from the natural world, but adorning it with baubles and lights, a reminder, perhaps a prayer, 
that the sun will return. And for our final word, I'd like to turn to John Matthews in his celebrated book, The Winter Solstice. There is a moment of silence that occurs every year, somewhere between the dawn of Christmas Eve and the setting of the sun on Christmas Day itself. A moment we've all experienced at least once in our lives, maybe more. It can silence a great city and it can bring stillness to our hearts, whoever and wherever we may be. That moment is unlike any other. It offers the promise of new beginnings, of the clean slate of new year, and it incorporates the breathless expectancy of Christmas night itself. It is a moment such as this that lies at the heart of the midwinter solstice, and it is in celebration of this that this book is written. The winter solstice was the turning point of time and the birthday of the sun, the moment of new beginnings. All of nature was poised then to step over the border of the year. When it became the birthday of Christ, Christmas night became that hinge. It commemorated the timeless moment when heaven came in contact with earth, and each year the anniversary recreated once again the circumstances of that first Christmas. Please stay to the end of today's show music, as I have a BBC radio drama called Solstice by Alison McClay for you. This was first broadcast on BBC Radio 4 on the 21st of December 1985. It stars the voices of Michael Elder as the Shaman, an incredible performance, also Diana Olsen and Paul Young. It was produced by Patrick Rayner for BBC Scotland. This slice of folk horror is inspiring and completely terrifying in equal measure. I wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas. You've been listening to Folkways, the folklore of Britain and Ireland podcast. The piece Many Points of Light by Judson Lee. The rest of the soundtrack by musician Josh Sandifer. Logo design Jim Fisher. Words written and read by myself, Ashley Clare Harron. Any additional artists, locations and work featured, as well as useful links and sources, can all be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to support our work, feel free to leave a tip when you leave this particular cafe by following the link to Buy Me A Coffee. Please also feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. This can help others to find the work and take enjoyment from it also. Thank you. Christmas!
to your house, a green tree from the northern forests. See, some things you still remember. An evergreen tree hung with lights and mirrors, sparkling gold like the glimmer of solstice fire through the forest branches, red and white, blood on the snow. And today, the day of endings and beginnings of death and rebirth, the birth of the sun, the solstice. Come with me, back to the very beginnings. Stretch out your hand to me. 
stretch out over a thousand generations. Come and understand once more. Soon you will. 
will see the magician's reindeer fly again, skimming the snow, speckled deer, riding the northern winds, pulling a sleigh with an old man in a red coat, bringing gifts. I tell you, your children are wiser than you. The dark forest presses on each side. The ice casts an iron band round your chest, snatching breath. But there, ahead, is fire. Solstice fire. Red cat upon the heart, striped with gold, spitting and twisting. Could eat the whole house if you let her. Now do you see how you are favoured? Midwinter blesses you with a festival of overeating. But look beyond the fire there, to the shadows. You see the old people, near ghosts, sitting, waiting for the cold to take them. This is the real midwinter, a time of hunger, when the old set themselves to die, to lighten the load on the rest. In the summer fattening time, the reindeer moved in herds on the plain, and we hunters followed, killing for our people, food in our bellies. That was a fine time. Sun-hot grasslands, and the grouse, so plump and slow, they could hardly rise away from our arrows. But winter's never far away. It soon blew down from the mountaintops, bringing the night spirits to live with us. If you listen, you'll hear the long dead howling in the forest. One-legged seamstress has needles but can't sew. Wears the same green gown each day and a white overcoat in winter. Kindle the fire, heat to heat, light to light. Give back fire to the sun at midwinter. Bring new fire to each home. A burning log from the forest. Fire to ease the birth pangs of the sun. The stones of the earth remember a time when the sun did not return to them from the darkness. Then ravenous ice engulfed the land, bringing nothing but stark white silence. The very mountains were split and milled to sand. What chance had the hunters and their people? For this reason, they make a gift of flame to the sun in midwinter, so that it will return to them. Red flame and white ash. Red and white. Solstice fire. Wither. Wither. Flowering night. May your dark juices bleed. Burn up like a pool on the summer plain. Shrivel like a stain upon sand. Dwindle to a basalt pebble. Tiny as a slow worm's eye is. Vanish to nothing. A red deer comes over the hill. Shoot your arrows as you will. The deer will stand there still. The sun rises as a deer on the hill. Let the shaman draw on a rock with white chalk and red ochre, and let the likeness live. The red
raven, the reindeer, the bear, and the leaping salmon. Let all those we have killed bring their gifts. Brother reindeer, I'm in your debt. You'd give me your brown autumn hide to wrap me, my buckskin shoes, my summer tent and sleeping bag, my skin boat which slips across the lake. Your sinews are my thread, your bones are my needles. My family, eat your tongue, your bone marrow, your unborn forms. From the birth of this new son to its death next winter, give me all these again. Follow the paths I know, from fawn birth to rut. Cross the river where an arrow, with my mark on it, can bring you down in the red water. My gift to you in return is never to kill you without need, and then only to take flesh, bone, and hide, to leave your spirit free on the plain. Come to the fire. And the shaman's magic will make it so. That is his task, to climb down through the smoke hole of the hut with a wooden reindeer painted in red ochre, and so make toys of its wild brothers. And you... Black soul of ravens. You who share our killing, you are our kin. You eat our meat and watch over our camps. Bran, the trickster. Your feathers hang from our flagsticks, driving the deer into our traps, deceiving them, making them afraid of feathers when arrows lie ahead. But, brother raven, do not deceive us like that. You know the sun must be born again tonight. Without its light, you will not find food. Without its light, your feathers will not dry, and your young will die of cold. Brother Bear, welcome. Shadow of death in the forest. Your claws split open the hunter from head to belly. And yet, your flesh dries on a string in the summer heat outside the hut of the fortunate hunter. All this the shaman will promise. As priest... Keeper of the game, magician, and midwife to the sun. Don't forget me. We are one, you and I, hunter and hunted. My gifts to you are the leap, swift urban thought, and the strength to run all day without slackening, though the heart is run out of your prey. I wish you the comfort of the pack about you, and the wisdom which knows caution, but not fear. Come to the fire, night brother, but not too near. Brothers of the natural world, and you others, silent watchers from the shadow world, long dead and unborn. It is the night of longest darkness, the time of greatest danger. The solstice fire burns as a sign to the sun that it must return, or we shall be left in the ice of eternal blackness. None here, O oh sun, have forgotten our debt to your warmth and light. Someone here has failed the trust. There is a lawbreaker here who has forgotten the custom. 
season's greetings from everyone here. Merry Christmas. White Christmas. No hell. No hell. Welcome to our store today. Our special Christmas offers. Well, if Holly has no berries, then why not give Mother Nature a helping hand with plastic ones, each on a piece of Whole Christmas dinner served daily from November 20th. A cracker and a novelty hat at each place. Once with this, we'll keep the needles on the tree and give the whole house a lovely piley smell. Or a manicure set for your dog, or rubber booties for that walk through the Plastic snow. Plastic reindeer, their noses painted fluorescent red. Look how they glow in the dark. Small Medium. and large. Two for the price of one, while stocks last. And a train set. And a bicycle. No help. No Season's greetings. Season's greetings. Merry, 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 merry. can you possibly know? Hunter, your feet are on the ground, and your nose is pressed to the blood trail. I fly high above your head, high enough to see what's to come. And I tell you, the world will be turned on its head. Raven, you are a liar, just as always. How could anyone who lives under the sun forget the sources? And the old laws. Are you going to tell them how to live off the earth and not in it? How to become its master? I tell you, where they have passed, the grass is scorched away. And the trees die as if withered by a brushed fire. Except that no green shoots follow. They destroy faster than they can grow. The cycles of seed and harvest are no longer something to live by, but something to be altered. The animals are no longer brothers, but slaves. How could they have forgotten? Knowledge has made them stupid. Seeing too much has made them blind. One thing they are sure of, that anything simple is a tale for little children. And so the children are the keepers of the truth. And your children are wiser than you. Perhaps they can tell you why every year you set up an evergreen tree from the forest. Like those about you now. Do you think it is simply to please them that you hang shining sun images upon it? Or is it because in the beginnings of time, your forefathers hung dead sacrifices on the living timber as gifts to the reborn sun? And still you utter the words, Yule Log, without remembering the burning branch from the forest which brought the solstice fire to the hearth. If you forget the very roots of belief, if you forget the earth and its laws, you are lost. Time is short. The solstice is almost upon us. Your own world is calling you back. Shaman, 
Will the sun be reborn? This time. This time. But if the trees are killed and the seas are poisoned, who knows? When clouds can bring death and not life, who knows? What will you have? Remember, I cannot guarantee the future. One day, a time may come when you wait for a dawn which fails to happen. And you, too, will grope and shiver in the dark as your ancestors once did. What I can give you is your own heritage which you have forgotten. Feel the load on your back. It is the weight of vanished worlds, a gift and a burden from a thousand generations past. You cannot lay it down until the last breath eases it from your shoulders and it passes to your children. You cannot refuse this gift Thoughts once formed cannot be unthought. Experience cannot be unlearned. But I promise you, the shaman will always be by your side to help you carry it. His magic is in your dreams. Inescapable. from the mountains in the mountains, wounded by stars and leaking shadow, eating the medical earth. Oh, little blood, little boneless, little skinless, plowing with a linnet's carcass, reaping the wild wind and threshing the stones. Oh, little blood, drumming in a cow's skull, dancing with gnats' feet, with an elephant's nose with a crocodile's tail, grown so wise, so terrible, sucking death's mouldy tits. Sit on my finger, sing in my ear, oh, little blood. Go now, back to your own world. But never again will you forget me. Whenever you see an old man with a white beard wearing a red suit and riding in a sleigh pulled by reindeer, the chains which bind you to your past will tighten, and you will feel again the pounding heart, the ache of the chase, the smell of blood warm on the snow, red and white, blood on the snow. Come to me, and you shall see the rebirth of the sun, the glorious solstice. I am the shaman. Remember, come to me.